Chapter 2, War Stories. Episode 9, Hard Heads and Purple Hearts. The Purple Heart was originally created by General George Washington. It was an award given to soldiers who fought valiantly in battle. It fell out of favor for a period of time, but was adopted again in 1932 as an award for soldiers who fought in World War I. It was originally based on merit. However, today it is the ubiquitous marker of a service member who has been injured as a result of combat. It can be awarded to the living and the dead. In December of 2014, just one troop from 717 Cavalry Regiment deployed, Alpha Troop. One platoon was attached to a task force that went to Jalalabad, Afghanistan. The other platoon, my platoon, was attached to Task Force Lift. We went to Bagram. We were assigned under an Apache company, so instead of reporting to a troop commander that flew the same helicopter as me, or sharing an office with people that flew the same helicopters as us, we commingled with Apache pilots. The greatest fortune was that the company commander that became my immediate supervisor was a total rock star, Ty Huffman. What could have been an incredibly awkward relationship ended up being a lot of fun. It would have been very easy for Ty to ignore us or treat us as the unwanted appendage to his otherwise incredible company of killing machines. Much to his credit and to his leadership, the moment we were told we would be attached to his company, he made us an integral part of the team. The 2014 deployment, if taken in comparison to other deployments in other places and other years, was rather tame. The truth is, I didn't fully comprehend what it was we were doing there. My guys were telling me we needed to shoot more, kill more bad guys, support more infantry types, going out and getting in the thick of things. What my leadership was telling me was that we would be supporting a lot of logistics convoys doing retrograde operations and that we needed to stop getting shot at. Looking back, no one really told me what the point was. We were no longer there to find, fix, and destroy the enemy. We weren't really there to support offensive tactical engagements. We were there partly as a preventative measure, deter whatever bad guys that were around Bagram from coming out without really getting in the mix of everything. The Afghans were supposed to be taking the lead, so we needed to help make it look like that was the case. Fly high. Don't get caught in so many pictures on election day. Avoid the bad guy areas. The less we go there, the less it looks like we're in combat. Don't pull the trigger. Even if the bad guys are shooting from a building, consider it a civilian dwelling. I only had a faint notion of what combat was supposed to look like. I'd read a lot about the counterterrorism fight while in college as part of my military sciences studies. I debated the merits of applying the laws of armed conflict to an enemy that didn't apply them in return as part of my studies about the Geneva Conventions. I'd read about the battles of Wanat and Ganjagal and Kopkeating as case studies on counterterrorism during summer training cycles as a cadet. The 2014 deployment wasn't at all what I'd pictured combat to be. Jeff was my first guy in theater. As the instructor pilot for our platoon, he needed to be the first downrange. He'd have to get certified in local area orientation flights so that he could then train the rest of the team, but mostly me. He picks up with the very real-life story of what it's like to live in transient barracks. We all deployed 
around Christmas of 2013, I left on the 23rd because I was on torch because I was going to be the IP slash SP of the platoon in Bagram. So I spent uh, Christmas Day in Kyrgyzstan with a bunch of Air Force people running around in like Santa hats. And then I got to Bagram. I, I showed up and there's like four inches of snow on the ground and it's snowing and it's dark. And they're like, hey, man, we don't have your room ready, but here's a transient barrack. Go to this room. So I'm, I've got, you know, two duffel bags and a flight bag. And I'm hauling all this shit through the snow. And I get to my room. And I'm like, I just need to go to sleep. So I, I unpack a few things, put some sheets on my bed and lay down and go to sleep. And then I start itching like in my crotch area, groin area. Like it's just itching. And then my, my chest is itching. And now I can't breathe. And now I can feel my eyeballs swelling. I'm like, what is in this room that I'm allergic to? Did somebody like rub the room with a cat? At some point when my, my breath started wheezing, I was like, I've got to get up and find some medical help. So I put my uniform on or some form of uniform on. And I trudged through the snow and I start asking people. I'm like, where do I go with, for medical help? And they're like, well, there's an MP station over there. I'm like, okay, I'll go over there. And they're like, what unit are you attached to? And I'm like, well, I'm, I'm an aviator. And they're like, well, the flight line's over there. So I finally find the aid station. And when I walk in, they're like, we're taking you to the hospital. And uh, they put me in a Humvee or something and take me around the airfield to the other side. So I'm, I'm in there, and they put an IV in me, and they start pumping Benadryl into me, and they, they, they start looking at me. Um, and there's these two very, very attractive young Air Force doctors or nurses and they want to see where all the hives are. And I'm like, well, they're in my crotch and butt crack area. And so they roll me on my side and they're looking at my butt crack. Um, and I'm just embarrassed as shit. Um, but I finally, like, I, I take a little nap on their table with some Benadryl. Um, and they release me and I get a ride back to the, the aviation side. And I go to bed back in my, I don't know, whatever, cat infested room. That's day one on Bagram for me on this deployment. That wouldn't be Jeff's last trip to the aid station on this deployment, but more on that later. When I talked to Brody, I was curious what he thought about our mission on the 2014 deployment and whether he understood what we were doing. Kind of. Um, You know, that particular deployment for us, as I understand it, um, was a lot more about security than it was about finding the enemy and eliminating the enemy. Do you know what I mean? Um, we were almost acting from the air as a security detail, security element for Bagram. Um, the reason I say that is, is because there was such a drastic difference between 2011 and 2014 deployments. Uh, I said a little bit earlier, Colonel Riley in 2011 was like, look, you're here to go out and find bad guys and eliminate them if possible. You're here to go out and find information and bring it back. That will allow us to do just that. That was 2011. 2014 felt a lot more like, hey, we just need you up there to let us know if anything bad's about to happen and sort of try to scare the enemy a little bit so they don't try to do much. You know what I mean? So... It, it was almost just like a security mission for Bagram Air Base. It, it was amazing to me 
how things had gotten to the point where, well, we don't want you out there because of what could happen. You know, we don't want you shooting because what that could create, you know, or this guy just shot a rocket at the airfield and we have, you know, we saw him do it, but we're not going to let you shoot until we call our JAG officer at four o'clock in the morning and wake him up and make sure no one's going to get in trouble if you shoot. That's the type of stuff that had changed. And I think that that sort of fed the frustration was the fact that getting back to your initial question, what are we doing here? You know, um, I thought that we were in a war and there are bad guys and there are bad guys trying to kill good guys. And we just saw a bad guy try to do something and we can't shoot him. What? You know, we have to call the lawyer. You know, those are the type of things that had changed that had just, the frustration level just built and built and built over the course of that nine months to where it was about to, you know, the bus there towards the end because over time, you know, there just wasn't enough. I don't know. In the end, regardless of what I did or did not understand to be the ultimate goal of our nine months in Afghanistan, I knew we had to fly and support ground forces to the best of our ability. That meant a lot of my time was spent dealing with logistics, maintenance, and personnel management that inherently go along with running a platoon of helicopters. I was signed for a ton of equipment, to include five Kiowa warriors. But I relied on my maintenance team to keep them up and running. When we got downrange, one of the helicopters was deadlined because it had been hit with shrapnel from a mortar round that landed right behind it on the flight line. The unit before us had been unable to fix the complex variety of problems that sprung up trying to piece it back together. Dave practically drooled when he saw the challenging puzzle. But I also I also feel like there is there's there's great job satisfaction to taking up a, a a problem with an aircraft that seems to baffle everybody or seems to not make any sense. You're taught to know the systems well enough to understand how that makes sense and why and then be able to fix it. I got a lot of job satisfaction out of that anyway. I asked Dave to explain how different the Kiowa was compared to other helicopters in terms of how its maintenance was managed. Um, so yeah, the, the, the Kiowa was maintained in a different way or a different fashion than every other aircraft in the Army. Um, so every other aircraft in the Army goes through a phase maintenance program where every so many hundred hours, maybe it's 300 hours, maybe it's 500 hours, whatever it is, um, the aircraft is brought in the hangar, it's depopulated, uh, largely depopulated from all of its components. The airframe's inspected, components are inspected, it's put back together and then sent back out. That whole process takes a while weeks, um, or the, the army says probably a month, um, where you lose that aircraft. Um, the Cairo was maintained in a different fashion entirely. So it never, it was never designed to, or never, it was never scheduled to come into a hangar and to be completely taken apart, inspected, completely put back together. So it, it did it through progressive phase maintenance. So it took, uh, um, 15 different, it, it basically took a phase uh, where you would take it all apart and do all that and all those inspections. It took all of those inspections that you would do, divided it by 15, and then took took a chunk, one-fifteenth of those inspections, 
and then those were a what we called a PPM, say PPM one or progressive phase maintenance number one, right? Where there would be this cluster of inspections that had to get done, and I had forty flight hours to do that cluster of inspections. So I could do it all in one day, take the aircraft down, do it all in one day, put it back together, and then leave. Or I could do, I could do it piecemeal. I could do some of those inspections in the morning, put that inspection panel back on, send that aircraft to fly that night. It would come back the next day. We would continue on with the PPM checklist until all those inspections were completed. As long as they were completed in a 40-hour, fly, you know, 40 flying hour block. Everything was good. Um, what that did was that gave the Kiowa a significant advantage over everything else that we had in the inventory because it was never down for weeks or months at a time. And so the operational readiness of the aircraft was phenomenal, um, significantly higher than everything else because it was never taken apart, put back together. And, and then we never induced the problems that you induce or that, that – Maintenance often often induces by taking a whole helicopter apart and then putting it all back together. It's it's been my experience now as an Apache MTP that a, a helicopter will work fairly well going into a phase. Then we take it apart, we put it back together, and suddenly there's a whole lot of things that don't work. And then we spend a lot of time troubleshooting those problems that didn't exist before we took that helicopter apart, and really only exist because we took the thing apart. It took Dave a few months to figure out that broken helicopter, which meant for the first few months of the deployment, we only had four aircraft. The Army monitors operational readiness rates with a very, very close eye. So every day at a maintenance meeting with battalion leadership, we had to report how many aircraft were flyable by their tail number and how many were not. Either Dave or myself for those first few months, had to report that we were only up on four of five aircraft, with no end in sight on fixing the fifth. And generally, because we had such wide windows of coverage, we flew more than anyone in the task force. A lot of the leadership, being Black Hawk or Chinook guys, were wringing their hands about how many hours we were putting on our four flyable aircraft. Dave and I had a good chuckle about all of that. You know, maybe I was just naive. I didn't know better. I didn't know enough um, about maintenance, or I just had a lot more confidence in that aircraft to be to be ready um, and and to be usable. But it uh, that's definitely true. Although we uh, we needed that fifth aircraft in the summertime because I mean I I remember distinctly having a, a conversation with the battalion commander as well as the production control officer. When I happened to be in the production control office, the maintenance production control office, when uh, he was he was going over what he thought was a huge problem with our helicopters with their battalion commander, and, and saying they just they are flying they being the Kiowas are flying way too much. Um, I don't I don't he didn't think our flying hours were sustainable. I mean, granted, we were flying, we were putting more than double the amount of aircraft or double, double the amount of hours per airframe on our helicopters that they were on theirs for the Blackhawks and the Apaches. Um, we were, we averaged in June and July, we averaged a little more than 120 hours per airframe per month, which is unheard of 
like in the, in the Apache world, that would be a, a whole phase every four months. Like every, every helicopter would have gone to phase every four months. That just would be a, a, an entirely out of the question, unsustainable number. And we were able to do it. I, I realized that we were getting pretty close on our margins, but I also knew that we were, we were capable of sustaining that. Even though our mission was a bit fuzzy, and we weren't always sure about the big picture, we were above all else, scouts. Hope was always alive that we would be in the right place at just the right time to find someone doing something they shouldn't. And just like he found a cave full of HME in 2011, Dave found the proverbial needle in the haystack in 2014 as well. So, uh, but Brandon was the air mission commander, and I'm just down there, you know, flying around, looking for things around Bagram. And we're kind of having a normal day. And right at sunset, uh, Brandon used to like to come over the top of this mountain because he kept telling me, he said, I, I am going to catch one of these guys. I'm going to catch somebody putting a rocket on this mountain. Yeah, 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 whatever, man. Uh, so this mountain was actually used as a bombing range, too, by the Air Force. And I, so <laughs> I, I kept telling him, like, yeah, that, that's what they're going to do. They're going to climb up where the Air Force drops 500-pound bombs for practice. And uh, they're going to put a rocket on it. Apparently, Brandon was right. Um, so sunset. The sun's kind of, it's getting a little lower, um, so it's a little past sunset, and we're, we're getting into EENT, or in, uh, evening nautical twilight. So we come over the top of this ridge line, not very high. Um, I don't want to tell you how high, because I get myself in trouble, but not very high. And sure enough, I fly right over the top of these two guys who are, they turn white as a ghost when they see me, and I see them. I'm close enough, I can see their eyeballs. And <laughs> so we whipped the helicopter back around to the left. And these guys, when we came up on them, one of them was kind of down on, on his knees and playing with this thing that was cylindrical. And that's really the only way that I could describe it at that point because I didn't know what it was. And then the other guy was on one knee and he had his hand kind of covering the, the, the last little bit of glare from the sun um, and looking down at Bagram Airfield, right? So this mountain is probably, I don't know, a couple of miles from Bagram, uh, but sat significantly higher. So they had a vantage point of the whole base from up there. Again, we're the, just this little scout helicopter. They never saw us coming. They never heard us coming. We just, right there, they landed in our laps. So from their vantage point, you know, one on basically all fours screwing with this this cylinder and the other from a knee, they look up at me and I remember looking down at them like, what are they doing down there? Um, and then kind of seeing the scene and taking it in and thinking, are they putting a rocket in? But I, I didn't know and I couldn't really see. So we whipped it back around. These guys got up and just, they must have been half billy goat because they are hauling ass down this mountain. And so... We realize as, as a team, these guys have a long way to climb down a mountain, probably a couple of thousand feet. They're not going anywhere for a while. We're going to be able to catch up with them in a couple of minutes. Let's take a look at whatever this was that they left. I, I am getting really close to it. Um, I'm flying and I'm getting really close to it, but we just still, we can't, we can't tell for sure, but we think 
there's a very good chance that this thing is a rocket that they're aiming at Bagram. So we take some pictures, um, hoping that we can kind of blow this thing up, because um, also the weather was starting to get a little bad. We take some pictures and thinking, well, we'll blow this thing up. We're going to follow these guys. We're pretty sure that what they had was a rocket that they were aiming at and, and planning on shooting at Bagram. But I, I couldn't be 100% sure. Anyway, so we catch back up with these billy goat guys that are driving, you know, that are, are running down this mountain. They hop onto a motorcycle, two guys on a motorcycle, and then uh, they start tearing ass through the desert for this road. So, you know, I mean, motorcycles are pretty quick, but I've, I've yet to see one outrun a helicopter. So uh, we're just kind of patiently circling and, and patiently waiting. One guy gets off the, the motorcycle and then they continue. So Brandon picks up the motorcycle and I, and I am watching the guy with, that is now running slash walking. And all the while, the conversation is, hey, is this guy a legitimate target? I'm, I am, I am pretty damn sure that what he just did was set up a rocket. But also the conversation is, is how much, how much value do we have shooting him versus if he goes back to where he, where he lives? What's the, what's the value there? Um, and as a scout pilot, that's a, something that we weigh. It's been my experience with the Apache world that most Apache pilots just would have killed them and moved on with their day. Anyway, uh, we chase these guys, and, and this guy on a motorcycle drives way over here, drives way over there. It ends up that these two guys end up at basically the same compound, um, not very far from the gates of Agram. And uh, we pass that grid. They're able to send ground guys to apprehend, and, and they, find, uh, they find quite a bit more in their little house. Then we land. We're going through the pictures. And sure enough, we can we can take the picture and blow it up and kind of doctor it a little bit. Um, and sure enough, that's a rocket, and that's aimed right at Bagram, and it's still there. And so that's when we got the idea to team up with an Apache and fly out there as a pink team and let them hit it with a Hellfire. And uh, so we did. We took them to the spot, handed the target over, which was difficult because it was pouring rain by this point, and visibility sucked, and it was really dark. So it took some it took some time. To give them that target, it took a little bit of time for them to kind of prosecute the way they wanted to, but um, they were able to hit it with a hellfire, and uh, they didn't get to shoot that rocket that day. Despite our minor, tactical successes, the inherent difficulty of participating in a war while not really fighting was an issue that reared its ugly head in terrible, tragic ways. My guys and I weren't the only ones dealing with these issues. Colonel Blackman, as the brigade commander, felt the frustration as well. I asked him what the 2014 deployment felt like in comparison to his experiences as squadron commander back in 2009. It was a different world. I mean, 2009, I, I, I bet I personally shot over a thousand rockets. I mean, it was, we, we, we fought every day and multiple places usually it, it was just and we were in the lead i mean there was no you know the the afghans were partnered with us but i mean we were banging targets and going after people and and getting attacked and there were so many things going on it was it was a different world and then in 14 you know the afghans are in the lead uh that was a tough transition you know um obviously i was i was in a very different 
you know, role at, at that point. And I had to try to temper a lot of the guys that, that struggled with Afghan and the lead. And what does that really look like, smell like, taste like? Um, and, you know, because, you know, I, I had some heated discussions with some of our SF brethren because they assumed a lot of risk. And, you know, the, the rules of engagement were very different. And I, I felt like there were times we were put into some compromising positions and, you know, I, I think directly to, um, you know, the, one of the most frustrating periods was, was when the kid over in, the, I think the tangy got shot in the neck and they said they were pinned down. They're sitting in arm, you know, up armored vehicles in the middle of the road and walking around and suddenly a kid gets shot and our pilots are like, break contact, just, just drive away. You know, I was just angry that they put us in that position. Um, Tim Slifko was in the airplane with him and, uh, he's as tenacious and will shoot as quick as anybody. But that was a situation where all they had to do was drive away and they kept hanging around. They kept messing around and we got, you know, a guy gets shot and then they kind of wanted to pin it on well, you guys should have just shot the house. Um, I, yeah, I had a hard time with that. The rules of engagement in 2014 technically didn't look all that different from 2009 or 2011. The words hadn't changed all that much. But the meaning of those words and their application, those changed a ton by the time I found myself at Bagram. It was a checklist of sorts. We could only pull the trigger when certain conditions were met. And generally, we couldn't shoot buildings of any kind, even if our guys were being shot at from it, because all buildings were considered to be civilian dwellings. However, if our guys were stuck, and they couldn't maneuver away, and they were taking effective fire, then, well, then we could shoot the building. As Colonel Blackman said, one of the hardest days in 2014 came from our experience working with a soft team, or an Operational Detachment Alpha, ODA. Jeff picks up with the rest of the story from that day. Real quick. An 18 Alpha is a designation for a special operations captain, usually the team leader of an ODA. So in April of 2014, we sent a crew out, and I really wanted, as the SP, I could have stepped in and taken charge of that crew, but I didn't. I was like, I'm going to trust my team because I've signed them off as pilots in command and air mission commanders. I'm going to let them go out and take this mission in the but we sent this crew out, and they were supporting an SFODA in the Afghania Valley, which is the northern east-west running valley of the Tagab. And they were they were asked to shoot a building. And at the time, the ROE said no rockets within 200 meters of a structure unless the friendly forces cannot maneuver to get away. And what they saw from the air was the friendly forces were just kind of hanging out by their Humvees. They were not pinned down, and they were not saying that they were pinned down. And they did the, the crew did not ask, hey, are you pinned down and unable to move? So that they made a choice not to shoot the structure. And at about that time, an 18 Alpha was shot <clears throat> and wounded, and they started working a medevac, and the the captain passed away. Now, third group placed all the blame on the scout team. 
they wanted they wanted blood. They were they they're like we lost one of our own. You didn't shoot the building. You didn't you fucked up the medevac. Like it's all you. And and it was it was a rough time. I don't know exactly what happened in the Afghania Valley that day. I could armchair quarterback the decisions that were made, things that could have been done differently or better. What I do know, though, is the context of what happened in the weeks leading up to April 2014. A couple of weeks before our team supported this mission, our Apache brethren from another unit were put in the hot seat. They'd been called out to a potential enemy outpost. After developing the situation, they shot at the apparent insurgent forces, only to find out later that they were friendly Afghan forces. So, there was a renewed scrutiny attached to helicopters shooting at things. The guys in the cockpits that day weren't strangers to pulling triggers. Brody, our resident ranger regiment, ground-pounding, country-invading cowboy, was one of them. It wasn't that they didn't want to pull the trigger. It's that they legally didn't think they could. It's that the war we were being asked to fight frequently had us doing so with one arm tied behind our backs, asking not what was the right decision for the situation at hand, but rather, could this decision hold up against lawyers and offices reviewing tapes five, ten, fifteen times over? It's that thing Colonel Blackman loathed. The idea that someone in a climate-controlled plywood office 50 miles away was better equipped to make a tactical decision than the people flying over the tactical situation developing below them. But that was the kind of war we were being asked to fight. The kind that looked more like peacekeeping, more like Afghan-led, more like no civ-cast collateral damage, and more like no friendly forces killed in action. We were being asked to wage a silent, perfect, sterile war. After April in the Afghania, after losing one of our own, things only got harder. As with all war stories, the guys didn't talk about it. Whatever breakdown in communication there had been, I could tell they felt the burden of responsibility for the loss. There was an air of silent agreement. Next time, boys, we pull the trigger. And whatever fallout happens on the back end, it won't be as bad as this. I put in the paperwork for one of my guys to be awarded the Purple Heart from that day. He didn't want me to do it, saying that getting shot in the chest plate and catching microscopic flecks of metal in his eyes, well, that wasn't really a wound. He didn't have to stop flying, so it wasn't that bad. I put him in for it anyway. Jeff picks up with the rest of the story after April in the Afghania. So exactly one month later, on the 27th of May, we had just done the, you know, the Memorial Day Murph on the 26th because that was Memorial Day. And we were going to go support the same ODA in the same valley on the same mission. And I was like, guys, I'm taking this one. I'm going to be the air mission commander and I'm going to sit left seat lead. I had Christina Fecky in the right seat, who at the time was a junior pilot. But as a left seater, I could. I could walk her in on gunshots, and I was confident in that. And I had Corey and Brandon Lancaster behind me, and I think Brandon was the PC of his aircraft. And what we were doing was called a yo-yo with an Apache team in the Afghania Valley. So the Apache team would go to FARP, and we would come out, or we would be ready to come out, and we would, we would jump in the valley. 
And then when the Apache team got gassed up and bullets up, they would come back and they would hold until we were ready and we would jump out and they would jump in. This was a pretty common practice with deliberate operations, those kinds of ground operations that required continuous aerial coverage. Apaches would go in, and when they needed gas or bullets, they would head back to the Forward Arming and Refueling Point, or FARP, and we would come in to provide coverage while they were gone. Now, a lot can happen in the time it takes for a helicopter to gas up and come back out. On this particular day, when Jeff's team got called back out to the Afghania, the ground guy, callsign Jag, asked them to hold just outside of the valley, behind a ridge of mountains. The enemy had started shooting, but usually they'd stop when helicopters came on scene. If the enemy stopped shooting, it would be almost impossible for our ground guys to close in on them. Turns out, it can be hard to tell an insurgent from a villager. Jag didn't want to bring the Kiowas in just yet. They needed a few more minutes of the enemy shooting. As Jeff's team held outside the valley, they could hear over radio chatter what was going on. The enemy rounds started to hit a little too close for comfort. Jeff called over the radio to remind Jag they were in a holding pattern, ready to come in if needed. So I did a couple stupid things. The first thing is I said a thousand foot hard deck, which is not a stupid thing unless you're going to do a decel to a pushover break and dive down below a thousand feet. Like if you do a cyclocondro pushover break at a thousand feet, then you'll still be at a thousand feet. But if you just decel to a pushover break at a thousand feet, you're going to start diving below it. Um, and then the second stupid thing I did was I did not give trail a gun brief. And I remember vividly Brandon as we rolled in and Jag's like, Hey, there's red smoke. There's a tree line, you know, east of the red smoke, anything in that tree line, kill it. I was just, I was just ready to shoot for Jag because we were taking so much heat for that captain dying. And Brandon keys the mic. He's like, Hey, you want to do a, a gun brief? And I was like, sure. Yeah, we'll do right breaks. We're going to leave with flechettes and we'll do right breaks. Here's the thing. People who have served frequently roll their eyes about these catchphrases they love to shove down our throats. One of these popular truisms is complacency kills. But I think in this scenario, it couldn't have been more true. After a few months downrange, and with the added pressure of being back in the Afghania, Jeff got complacent. A lot of those training things that should have been so habitual as to have been almost automatic didn't happen. A gun brief is what the lead aircraft says to the trail aircraft behind them. If the main point of the trail aircraft is to shoot at the enemy so they keep their heads down while the lead aircraft breaks away, the trail aircraft kind of needs to know what the lead aircraft is going to do. Which direction lead aircraft is going to break away from the target is a very important piece of information because it helps the trail aircraft know what to look for before they pull the trigger and how to set up their shot. I made Jeff tell me what a normal gun brief to the trail aircraft should have sounded like. So we're going to be inbound on a 090. We're going to do a cyclocon to a pushover break. We're going to shoot two flechettes and we're going to break right. And, um, and I need you to follow me with guns. Like that is standard. But I didn't give him an inbound heading. I just assumed he knew like we're flying over the red smoke. And I didn't even, I didn't think about which way we were breaking. I was just like, as long as we break away, we're fine. But if you look on Google Maps, where we were shooting, the, the friendly forces owned the northern road and the mountain. 
and they didn't own the southern fields and river valley. So if I had been thinking, I would have been like, hey, a left break would probably keep us safer. But I was just thinking, I got to get in here and put bullets on target right now because Jag asked for it. And they are they are seriously thinking that scouts are pussies. So we rolled in a thousand feet and I was ghosting Christina on the controls. And we, we did a decel and we rolled in and I had a flechette shot set up. In the chaos, Jeff didn't actually get two flechette rockets out. He shot two high explosive rockets. In the intervening seconds between those rockets hitting the target and turning the aircraft away, complacency did in fact almost kill. I relinquished the controls to her and let her break to her side, which was the right side, and she's doing like a standard flight school climb, like 500 feet per minute, 60% mass torque, 60 knots, we're just flying away. Um, and I think it was 23 seconds later that you hear, and then you hear me scream like a little girl, I'm like, ah, fuck. And that's when I took the bullet in the back. And exactly that moment, as the bullet threaded the space between the back armor panel and the side armor panel and went into my soft body armor and exploded a hole in my back, Jack comes on the radio and says, good effects, good effects, immediate reattack. And I keyed the mic and said, I got a bullet in my back, and I think we're going to go back to Bagram. And I think there was some confusion. He, I think he queried me on whether or not I said what I said I did. And I'm like, yeah, there's definitely a bullet in my back. And we're leaving. Um, and he, he had a 10 on station. And his target was, was readily marked by my two HE rockets. And Trail had gotten two good flechette shots off. And so I'm pretty sure he was okay. Um, he gave me a t-shirt later, which I still have. Um, and his boss, Colonel Rosega, gave me a coin while I was high on Percocet many weeks later. But the story is he had just had his rifle shot out of his hand and was, like, cowering behind a wall when we came in for the shot and then was able to, like, bound back and recuperate. We flew back to Bodrum, and funny story, so apparently the whole brigade believed that I landed the helicopter, walked into the hospital, I was like, hey, can somebody help me? And that's not how it happened. So Brandon calls calls me. The first thing I'm thinking is we should land at this Afghan fob and call a medevac. When I reached my hand behind my back and like came back with blood on it, and it hurts really bad. I've never been shot before, and, and I'm like, oh, we should probably just land and, and let me out. But then after a couple seconds of flying, I'm like, hey, I'm not going unconscious. Like, I don't feel like I'm dying. Maybe we can go to Bagram. And so Brandon calls and he says, hey, man, since you're shot, I'm going to take over AMC duties. And I remember keying the mic and saying, hey, man, I'm not unconscious. And I, I unkeyed the mic and I looked at Christina and I said, hey, by the way, I'm going to lock my shoulder harnesses in case I go unconscious. Brandon's back there calling tower like we got an emergency. We're landing directly to the combat support hospital. We got there, and everybody showed up. There were four or five people with a stretcher trying to get me out of the helicopter. I'm like, I think I can get out without assistance. I'm not sure where this bullet is, but I don't think my guts are going to pour out of my back when I stand up. So let's, let's try that. And, and I got out. And I 
took my body armor off and I lay down on the stretcher and they took me in the hospital and everybody who was a medic on Bagram that day, probably 80 people were in the room. I'm laying there and they want to cut my boots off. And I'm like, can you please not like they're my good flight boots. And they want to cut my pants off. I'm like, can we just take them off? And then they want to cut my flight shirt off. And I'm like, that's fine. Go ahead. Just cut it off. I can get another one of those. And they're, they got a regular IV in my right arm and they're trying to get a trauma IV in my left arm. I've got these IVs in and there's 70 people in the room and I'm pr practically naked and two men reach over from to from the right side and grab me and start to roll me to the side. As they reach over, I look at this young woman who is now putting on a glove and squirting something on her finger and I'm like, what's she doing? And as they roll my body, her finger goes in my butt. And I'm like, why did you do that? I specifically said those words. And some, I don't know, doctor, PA or whatever says, we had to check you for internal bleeding. And I'm like, why couldn't you warn a guy? Like, just a heads up. And this guy comes and now it's, it's dwindled down from 70 people because I'm not going to die to like three dudes. And this guy's like, hey, man, we've, we've done an x-ray. We did a CAT scan. There's nothing inside you. Like, it's just a hole. We're going to clean it and pack it and send you on your way. And then the first sergeant comes to pick me up from the hospital. And he's got me in, you know, a Hilux. He drives me around the backside of, of Bagram to our area and takes me in our talk. And I'm the... I'm the master gunner, so I've got to cut the gun video. And I'm high on morphine, so why not? So I sit down in this, I think it was a green, like, plastic chair. You know, the top part is separated from the bottom part, but it's on wheels. And I'm sitting in it, and I'm at a Miltopes, until you come over to me, and you're like, Hey, Jeff, you're bleeding all over the fucking floor. And I'm like, what do you mean? And I look, and there's a puddle of fucking blood. So... I'm trying to cut our transfer gun video from our DTM cards to the Miltop so I can burn it to a disc and take it over to and cut the video. And you're like, Jeff, you can't do that right now. You have to go back to the aid station. So then you guys put me in a truck and took me to the aid station. And Deborah and Courtney, so Deborah's the PA, Courtney's the flight doc. I walk in there and I'm bleeding everywhere. And like, what the fuck did the hospital do to you? Like, you're just bleeding everywhere. At that point, they, they packed the sterile sponge into my back and put the wound back on and I had to walk around with a colostomy bag for like two weeks. So that was me getting shot. But the story is I, I walked in like John Wayne and was like, Hey guys, where can I put this cigarette out and who can fix this hole in my back? The great part is people believe it. Like there's a war officer in flight school who was Jimmy Blackman's, you know, E one adjutant back in the day who thinks I'm some sort of John Wayne guy. It's like, no, I know, I know like, I had a minor flesh wound, and I got a finger in the butt. I was on night shift the day that this happened. I was walking from my containerized housing unit to the flight line when two Kiowas came screaming overhead. My skin started crawling, because we never, and I mean never, flew into Bagram that direction or at that airspeed. I could see they landed on the opposite side of the flight line, where the hospital was. Then, my burner Afghan cell phone started ringing in my pocket. It was someone from battalion headquarters. They told me I needed to get into the office, ASAP. One of my guys had been shot. So, I held my pistol against my hip, 
took off my patrol cap, and started sprinting towards the flight line. By the time I got there, the trail aircraft was up on the radio with our headquarters straightening everything out. Initially, they thought it was Corey that had been shot, but now we knew it was Jeff. Initially, someone getting shot and going straight to the hospital was extreme cause for alarm, but now we knew Jeff had gotten out of the helicopter under his own power. Someone mentioned calling Jeff's wife, and I said absolutely not. If he walked out of the helicopter, he could call her once the doctors were done with him. Besides, I wasn't going to call her with absolutely nothing to say. I wanted to at least see Jeff before I called his family. To say Jeff was obnoxious after he got shot would be an understatement. He was still a bull in a china shop, but for a few weeks he couldn't fly, he couldn't work out, and he was on a lot of painkillers. He played a lot of Tiger Woods golf on the TV in the office, watched a lot of movies, and complained a lot. Complained about not flying, complained about not working out, complained about the colostomy bag, complained about not being better at Tiger Woods golf. A lot of things. He sat at my desk and stole my computer to mess around on Facebook and ate all the canned sardines he could find at the USO. He was bored as hell and as a byproduct, annoying as hell. But it was with a deep sense of gratitude and relief that Jeff Cowan was still there to bother me. I think everyone felt the same. Jeff was the second Purple Heart I submitted thanks to the Afghani Valley. In true Jeff fashion, he said he didn't mind the minor flesh wound and a finger in the butt because now his kids qualified for free college in most states as children of a Purple Heart recipient. Before we redeployed back to the states, there was an award ceremony. Colonel Blackman came to our hangar to pin everyone's deployment awards on their uniform. Afterwards, I walked up to our two Purple Heart recipients to shake their hands. All I could think to say was, I'm not sure what to do. Do you congratulate someone for getting shot? I have so many more war stories to tell. And I know if I called them again and asked, the guys would too. But I walked away from the 2014 deployment appreciating, more than ever, the existence of millimeters and seconds. Because in the Afghania Valley of Afghanistan, they can make all the difference. We will take a one-week break before we pick up with our next chapter, The Long Goodbye. We hope you'll join us. If you're enjoying the podcast, please subscribe so you never miss an episode. If you have a spare moment and would like to rate and review, we would greatly appreciate your feedback. At the end of the series, we will host a special question-and-answer episode. If you have any questions you'd like to ask myself or any of our cowboys, please reach out to us at membersofsocietypodcast at gmail.com or on Instagram at membersofsocietypodcast. Until next week, Death Rides.